Well, this is our 10th session, so we're getting very close to the end here. And we'll be looking, most of our time will be the Exodus. I do intend to complete that today. We may have a little time for the next major event after that one. So the Exodus, the emphasis will be the book of Exodus, the first 18 chapters. Now, obviously, we're not going to exegete each passage, but we'll look at some of the main passages that kind of give us not only a feel for what God is doing in this time frame, but also how those passages actually are the the focus of the things that we're going to look at in terms of implications. Now, I think you have, can clearly see how important the creation was, how important the the fall was in terms of the rest of world history, and even the Genesis flood that affected the whole world. So you, you would probably easily in, include them as major events. When you come to the scattering, people would not probably recognize that as so major. But if you think in terms of this is where the nations come from, it's huge. And language. Well, he did something to tweak their brains and their thinking. Mm-hmm. Right. And most people don't look at the Exodus as a major world event, and particularly the secular world. Now, the secular world doesn't view any of these as major events. But even uh, even within Christian circles and even yourselves, I don't know if you have thought about the Exodus as as significant as some of these other events that we've been looking at. But hopefully I will try to demonstrate that. So we will look at the book of Exodus and we'll focus on the first 18 chapters. And obviously we're not going to read all of those passages, but we'll pull out verses that emphasize the main thrust of those chapters. Now on your outline sheet, all of the outline sheets up to today, not including today, have primarily been an outline of the book of Genesis. I've kind of walked you through the book of Genesis, and that's my outline for the book of Genesis. Beginning with this outline sheet, it actually is is a broader outline in terms of the whole Old Testament history. So I will complete and give you a kind of a historical outline of all of the Old Testament. Now, obviously, Genesis is included there in that uh, Roman numeral number one, the origin of Israel. That's all of the book of Genesis. So you could put that as the big big outline title for the book of Genesis and then all of the parts of the things that we've treated. So we've looked at the origin of Israel. We're going to look at the emergence of Israel. And you might already be picking up the Old Testament is about what? No. Trick question. <laughs> it's about God. Good. You recovered quickly. <laughs> it's about God, but what God is doing with the nation of Israel. So we're going to focus on Israel through the rest of the Old Testament. So all of Genesis is the origin of Israel. Where did Israel come from? And it begins, as we looked at last week, the Abrahamic covenant, Abraham and the Abrahamic covenant. So all of the Old Testament, if you want a broader title of all the Old Testament, I would call it the Anticipation of Messiah. I summarize the whole Old Testament in the Anticipation of Messiah. Or we could even use the word the foundation for the coming of Messiah or something along those lines. 
going along with kind of the title of our course here. And as I said, Genesis is the origin of Israel. We're going to next, Roman numeral two here, is the emergence of Israel. They're not a nation. They are not even, almost not even a, well, they're a unified group of people, but they're not organized in any way. So they have to emerge, and subdividing the emergence, all this is on your outline sheet. So this is the emergence of Israel, broken down, formation of the nation. They're not a nation yet, but God is in the process of forming them into a nation. In fact, they will not become a nation until the conquest. There's three things that are required for a people to be a nation. You can probably think of some of them. We've already looked at some of them. A common what? Number one. Not so much language, but a common people. Common people. Secondly, a common common land. That's third one, though. That's number three. Mark's got it. A common constitution that binds this people together. Mark said law, and that's what it is. The law is their constitution. So they will not be a full-fledged nation until they are in the land. So we have the formation of the nation in that God is bringing this people together as an identifiable people, brings them out of another nation, out of uh, Egypt, and begins to move them towards the land. And in the process, he will give them a constitution, he will give them law, and then in the conquest, they will enter the land and conquer the land. So we have the formation of the nation. Under that, number one, we have bondage and birth. So this is the early chapters of the book of Exodus. And it's in the book of Exodus that they are born, if you will, as a, an infant nation. Not, not to maturity yet, not to fullness. But God preserves them and develops them. And I like to use the analogy of in the womb of Egypt. And the Exodus is the expelling out of the womb. It's a painful experience. To Egypt, primarily. And uh, little a, under bondage of birth, the first four chapters, is preparation for deliverance. So let's take a look at the next major event, which is the Exodus. We've seen the creation, the fall, the flood, the scattering, and we just finished Abraham. And the next major event is the Exodus, about 1445 is the date that I use. This will vary from scholar to scholar. Some scholars, uh, 44, 1444, others 1446. And the reason I'm emphasizing dates is because these are all historical events. These are things that took place in reality. These are not legends. And particularly the, the Exodus is clearly a historical event. The underlying perfection of God that I think is illustrated by what God is doing with the children of Israel is both grace and wrath. Grace, because we see in, not only in the book of Exodus, but we've already seen in the book of Genesis, the sons of Jacob, the children of Israel, the descendants of Abraham are not deserving of anything that God would give them. And grace, by definition, is unmerited favor. So God blessing people 
in spite of them not deserving any blessing whatsoever. And we see that, we're going to see that clearly uh, in the book of Exodus. But we're also going to see God's wrath in the way that he's going to deal with the Egyptians. He's going to judge them. This is going to be a period of judgment for the, the nation of Egypt, and particularly their Pharaoh. He will be judged, and he will not survive the, the incident. And again, just one verse that portrays this, Psalm 86.15, and we could see many, many verses that give us both the grace and wrath. But Psalm 86.15 gives us kind of a a glimpse of both. But thou, O Lord, art a God merciful and gracious. There's the grace. God is a gracious God. He gives to those that are undeserving. That includes you and I. We don't deserve his grace. He's slow to anger, which indicates there is anger. There is wrath in God's dealing. But he's slow to pour out wrath. He allows sin to run its course, and then he intervenes and pours out judgment. And usually at the same time, he's pouring out grace because he's saving that that he wants to preserve by judging. And then it goes on, not only slow to anger, and abundant in loving kindness and truth. And I told you about chesed here. That's loving kindness. Loving kindness is God's covenant love, committed love. God doesn't divorce his people, even though they divorce him. So here's one verse. The reason I use this is because it captures both grace and wrath. But there's literally hundreds of verses that speak of the grace of God and the loving kindness of God, which is an expression of grace. And there's equally an equal number of verses that speak of the wrath of God as well. Even a slow to anger, since he's slow, that's gracious. He could execute judgment immediately. He's patient is another way of putting it. Just a little kind of summary of biblical history here. We've already seen the origin of Israel, and now what we're going to focus in on is the emergence of Israel in this time frame here. So this is the Egyptian period, and it'll run even beyond the Exodus, the emergence of Israel. little background on not only the book of Exodus, but this background to the Exodus, the event itself. And the slide in the background is Nile Valley, and near the river, it's pretty lush on some occasions. And the stepped pyramid, which I've shown you photographs, and I'll show you more, is in the background there. But that's just for your own visual delight. First of all, the background is related to what we were talking about last week, the Abrahamic covenant. God is going to work to fulfill the covenant. And if you remember, in Genesis 15, we looked at the instituting of the covenant and the ceremony there that God basically enters into covenant with Abraham. Abraham's asleep, so this is an unconditional covenant dependent only on God himself. No matter what Abraham does, God is going to fulfill it. And no matter what his descendants do, God is going to fulfill it. And in some cases, God has to discipline, needs to work in the lives of these descendants to get them to a place where he will, in fact, fulfill what he says. And what I have primarily in mind here is Jacob, who is a deceiver, 
a supplanter, a rebellious individual that shows very little evidence of faith in the biblical text. But God works circumstances in his life to bring him to faith and to bring him to the point where he will have children, and through those children, God will continue. But then we saw also, and this is jumping ahead a little bit, but God has to work through those those children as well to get them where they need to be, and that's essentially the last part of the book of Genesis. But God is going to fulfill what he has committed in the Abrahamic covenant. So Genesis 15, and we ought to review that. Let's look real quickly back at that. And Holland, why don't you start off and read that again? And do verse 15:18. And the reason I have you read that one is because this is the first occurrence of the word covenant in relationship to this promise. You got it? On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Hades. Okay, so we have the extent of the land. Now, he had already spoken of the descendants. They're going to be like the stars of the heavens. So it deals with the seed, and it deals with the land. And then in verse 18, on that day, and it's on that occasion of that ceremony that preceded, that God entered into a covenant. We looked at other passages like uh, Genesis 17 and the reiteration of the covenant to Abraham again later on. And then it's reinstituted with Isaac. And then again later with Jacob. So it occurs several times. So you have to keep that in the back of your, your thinking. And notice, stay in Genesis 15, Mackenzie, I'm going to have you read there in a moment. I mentioned the disintegrating of Israel. We looked at some passages in Genesis 37 and chapter 38. We won't review them. The hatred of Joseph, where they essentially do away with him. He ends up in Egypt. One of the sons is involved in a relationship with the Canaanites, intermarriage, intersexual relations with the Canaanites. So we have all of these problems in the the family, there's jealousy, there's uh, these other issues that are in those two chapters. This is part of the background of how they get into Egypt, and God has to preserve them. So they are in the land of Israel, and God is going to have to move them to a place where the culture is conducive to preserving them. The Canaanites would intermarry very easily. And the Israelites, had they stayed in Canaan, would have lost their identity. And had God not intervened and man was left to his own sin, the Abrahamic covenant would have been destroyed, basically. But since God is the only one that's going to keep it, he is going to intervene to accomplish it. And that's what the latter part of the book of Genesis is all about. So in that, we have just another photograph here. We're going to focus on the land of Egypt now. Just to give you a feel, uh, this would have been there when the children, this pyramid would have been there when the children of Israel arrived, so they, I'm sure, saw it, because it precedes them. In fact, it precedes Abraham. The stepped, what's called the step pyramid of Saqqara, I gave you a little explanation on it, I think, last time. A pharaoh by the name of Zosar, it was built as a tomb for him. 
And architecturally, it resembles more the ziggurats of Mesopotamia than it does the later pyramids of Egypt. And just another photograph of it. Back to our background slide here. We also know that now that they are in Egypt, they're in bondage. And that's Exodus 1 through 14. One of the passages I wanted to also read, read 16. Would you, Mackenzie? 1516 in the book of Genesis. And they shall come back here with the nation, for the iniquity of theirs is mine. Okay. God, in the Abrahamic covenant, before any degeneration, before all the things I've just described, is already predicting that sin is going to have their effects and they're going to end up in Egypt. And verse 16 says that they will come back to the land of Canaan But in that time frame, God is going to allow the Canaanite sin to reach its ultimate. And the Amorites were a Canaanite people, and the reference is basically the Canaanites in general as well. And it gives a time frame. It's going to be over 400 years. So until that, in fact, the preceding passages speak of a bondage, and it's the Egyptian bondage that is described in the book of Exodus. So that's Exodus 1 through 14. Let's add, at this point, let's add to our foundation for the nations. We started this already when we spoke of Babel. And we mentioned that uh, the nations actually precede Babel in that they're rooted in God's purposes, not anything that man proposes, not evolution. And because of Babel, it's the nations come about as a result of God's judgment. But remember, even in the creation mandate, God intended that man multiply and fill the earth. Now, it doesn't mention nations there, but the implication would be that people would organize themselves into smaller bodies or different groups of governmental people, even though government doesn't come until after the flood. But Babel brings about the scattering that results in the nations. So it's, again, not man. And I've emphasized throughout, God is sovereign over all the nations. They're not independent of God. And we saw from the Acts passage, in fact, the sovereignty also is in the Acts 17 passage. That passage also gives us the purpose of the nations. In other words, it gives people an environment to seek God. So they're not autonomous. They have opportunity to have relationship. And we know from the Abrahamic covenant, we saw this through Abraham, uh, the nations are also intended to be blessed through God's instrument, the nation of Israel. So it's not through their own materialistic or their own devices, not materialism. It's as a result of the relationship that they will develop with the nation of Israel. And we've seen that historically. I tried to demonstrate a little bit of that as well. And what we're seeing in the book of Exodus is the first example of how, or one of the things that God is going to do in using the nations, and we're going to see this throughout history, God uses the nations to discipline his people, discipline the nation of Israel. No matter how pagan, no matter how idolatrous, no matter how corrupt, no matter how evil, God will choose and select different nations 
to bring discipline to the nation of Israel. And remember, the nation of Israel it was on the verge of disintegrating, so God puts them in an environment that will preserve them. And it's going to also be a time of training. That's the essence of discipline. It is punishment, it is corrective, but it's also training. So one of the purposes of God throughout history of the nations is for the discipline of Israel. It's not simply persecution. From uh, man's perspective, we see the suffering of Jews and the anti-Semitism of the Jewish people as Gentiles persecuting Jews. Now that is true. But from the divine perspective, God uses that and transforms it to accomplish good in his people. And even though his people have been persecuted, taken into captivity, gone through holocausts and all of this, it has served as God's discipline and training for his people. So that's a very important aspect of why the nations exist. Now, look for that statement in your uh, UNM World History course, right? Seventh, ultimately, the nations will have even a part in God's future time frame. We call that the Millennial Kingdom. We won't look at this, but if you look at the book of Revelation, you will see in chapter 20 the nations are mentioned. In fact, a couple of interesting names are mentioned in that passage. Gog and Magog. Very interesting. So, the nations have a place in the plan of God. So, this includes all of world history, all peoples, Gentiles. Israel is the focus, but God is not leaving any peoples out. So, any, you know, Chinese history, German history, African history, South American history, God has a place for all of them, and these nations ultimately... The believing remnant that survived the Great Tribulation will enter in the Millennial Kingdom. Make sense? One thing. Glorified in eternity. Another thing. The nations are never destroyed, so they'll be glorified in eternity. Forgot I had number eight there. They're not destroyed. Now, how they will look after that, I have no idea. The Bible doesn't give us a clue. So that's your foundation for the nations. More background, the fourth point in our background here, we have the deliverer of Israel is raised up, Moses, and that's chapters 1 and 2. So let's take a closer look at it. First of all, this is just a shot that I took when I was in Egypt of the Nile, pretty sizable river, and this is in the Luxor area, so this would be southern, so the the river is quite large, and it continues down until it empties into the Mediterranean. So let's look at these passages that gives us a feel for this deliverer that is raised up. Connie, do you want to do one one just to give us the beginning of the book there? Okay, so it kind of sets the stage here, transitioning from Genesis. These are the sons that came to Israel. So, if you had just read Genesis, this kind of picks up the history, even even though it's going to go several hundred years after the end of the book of Genesis. So, it's just kind of linking you here. And, Mark, you want to do 7 and 8 of chapter 1? 
But the sons of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly, and multiplied and became exceedingly mighty, so that the land was filled with them. Now a new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. Okay. Now why is that last statement significant? But first of all, they're prospering, they're growing, God is creating the basis for a nation. And there's many of them now. Now to ask what I started off here, what's the significance of that phrase in verse 9, or 8 rather? A new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. Well, what's the situation of Israel and Egypt under Joseph? And the leaders actually, the pharaohs. Very, yeah, that's a good way of describing it. Most favored nation status. Very good, yeah. They had a very good relationship. In fact, it was a very pleasant time under the time of Joseph. And it seems like it persisted for some time. But what's the significance of that little phrase here? Everything changes. Anytime you get a new guy in charge, personnel, people, the old. That's right. Everything changes. Everything is different now. And let's look a little bit more at that. Verse 11. Randy, you got it? Therefore, they did settle over them task Okay, and those are probably up in the north. So they're involved in the economy, but not as free people. They're in bondage, and they are under taskmasters, which means their work is not easy. And let's look at chapter 2, 1, and 1 through 3. Loretta, you want to do it? Now the man from the house of Levi went and married the daughter of Levi. Okay, so here is one of the tribes from the tribe of Levi. Doesn't tell us who yet, but here's a man. Keep reading. The woman conceived and bore a son, and she saw that he was beautiful. She did for three months. Okay, so a woman has a son. He's a beautiful one. And actually in the Hebrew text, that word beautiful there certainly conveys that idea, but it has more of the idea that there's something special about this son, something different. She observes something unique about this son. So she hides him. Now, if we had read the preceding, one of the things that they were doing is destroying the children because they were multiplying so, so much. Read the last verse. But when she could hide him no longer... She got him a wicker basket, covered it up over on the car, and then she put the child into it and set it upon the reeds by the bank of the mountain. Okay. And obviously, who is this son? Moses. So somewhere in an area, something like this, there were obviously Egyptian structures, palaces, and that sort of thing. Because if you read on, you remember the story. You saw the movie as well. Moses was floated down the river, and the, what is it, the daughter of Pharaoh finds the baby. You, you remember the story. So somewhere in a setting, something like that, not necessarily exactly at this point. We don't know where it took place exactly. And in chapter 2, let's read it. You want to get that one, Holly? When the child grew up, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he she named him Moses because she said, I drew water. Okay. So there's the clear identification of this son that is peculiar, is unusual, is unique. A sense that he has a maybe a, a bigger mission than you might understand. 
Chapter 3, verses 9 through 10. Do you want to do that one? Okay, so this is God addressing Moses, giving him instructions. The cry of his people, the Israelites, is recognized by God, and he has raised up this deliverer. That's the special mission. That's the special task that God has given him. And he begins to send him out. Now, he has a little problem, but God's going to overcome that easily. And so this is Moses. (laughs) Who else could it be, right? Yeah. I've also also thought that uh, when we get to heaven and actually meet the real Moses, we're going to say, you're not Moses. You don't look anything like (laughs) Moses. So that leads us to our first implication. And the first implication is God is moving to fulfill the covenant that we looked at last time. He is moving to fulfill the Abrahamic covenant. Because that is that is the parameters of world history. Remember we said that. We've been saying that over and over. So let's take a look at some more passages. Let's read Exodus 2, 23 through 25. Mark, you want to... Continue the reading there. 2.23-25. Now it came about in the course of those many days that the king of Egypt died, and the sons of Israel sighed because of the and they cried out, and they cried for help because of the bondage rose up to God. So God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God saw the sons of Israel, and God took notice of them. Did you notice something in verse 24? He remembered his covenant. Not that he ever forgot it, but the idea here is God is now acting in terms of his commitment to the Abrahamic covenant. From man's perspective, it almost seems like God has forgotten us as a people. We've been abandoned. We've been here 400 years. Haven't heard a thing from God. So from man's perspective, it appears like God had forgotten, but now he remembers. But in reality, this is an anthropomorphism. In other words, it's a picture of God, pictured in the way that we would picture a man forgetting, but now remembering. But in reality, what it means is God is now acting in accord with that covenant. So it's crystal clear what's going on. This is what's happening in all of the events of the book of Exodus. God is moving to continue to move forward in relationship to the Abrahamic covenant. So it tells us clearly his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And let's read 3, 6 through 7, which reemphasizes it again. See the reminder, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So that reminds you of the last... Chapters of the book of Genesis, 12 through 15. Keep reading. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. And the Lord said, I have surely seen the mission of the charge of Egypt, and further pride by these tasks, pride of their sorrows. Okay. So God is now going to move. He's going to act. And Loretta, you want to skip to chapter 6, read 2 through 8. Notice the reference again that Randy just read of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob ties it back to the covenant. And by the way, there's other references. I'm just giving you kind of these early ones and the most clear ones. 6, 2 through 8. 
Yeah, we probably won't read it all. I, I, I want you to get a feel for it, though. Start with two and all. Bill stopped. God spoke further to Moses and said unto him, I am the Lord, and I appear to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty. Okay, he appeared to them. What does this remind Moses of? Not just simply a relationship, not just simply God appearing to people, but it will remind him of that covenantal relationship. Keep reading. But by my name, Lord, I did not make myself known. I also established a covenant to give them the land, Canaan, the land in which they sojourned. Okay, the covenant, so clearly stated. I established my covenant with them, with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. All three of them. We saw the reiteration to each one of them. So God established the covenant with them, and obviously it involves the land, to give them the land of Canaan. So Moses is reminded of the stipulation of the land. Read at least a couple more verses. Furthermore... Israel, because of the Egyptians, are holy thanksgiving. Furthermore, I have heard the groaning of the sons of Israel, the Egyptians are holding in bondage, and I have in the covenant. Okay, God has remembered his covenant. Or in other words, God is saying, I'm reactivating my work of fulfilling the covenant. Six. Say, therefore, to the sons of Israel, I am the Lord, and will bring you up from under the top of the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you. Okay, he's telling us what he's going to do. That's a very important verse there. He is going to move to fulfill some aspects of the covenant or move history forward in terms of the covenant. It's going to involve the Egyptians and it's going to involve judgment. So he's going to judge the Egyptians. And read, skip to verse 8. I will bring you to the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, give it before possession. I am the Lord. Okay. Again, a reference to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Implied in it is the covenant that is stated earlier, the covenant that God remembered. So it's intimately tied, and like I said, there's other verses as well, but these are the clearest ones that tie it to the covenant. So all of the events of the book of Exodus is God is moving history forward in accord with what he has purposed in the Abrahamic covenant. So, number one, implication, the fulfillment of the covenant. Number two, it's going to involve judgment, as we mentioned earlier, and it's going to involve grace. Judgment and grace. So in the book, the judgment part... The judgment will be upon the Egyptians in order to allow an escape from Egypt. And the story of the plagues are really a story of God intervening in this stable empire. And this empire is the empire of the world of that day. It is the most powerful empire. In fact, it was the highest level of culture that existed at that time frame, the development of very, very high culture. And we have a lot of archaeology that gives us a lot of insight into that culture, including written documents, inscriptions on walls, messages on walls, and that sort of thing. And one of the things I mentioned, so high a culture that 
we don't understand all of the technology that they had to be able to create some of the structures that still exist thousands of years later. So it's going to involve a judgment on the Egyptians. So it's going to be judgment on the world empire of that day, which is overlooked by your world history secular text. might mention something of Egypt, but the emphasis is Egypt, and virtually nothing is said about Israel. Secondly, I said it's going to involve judgment and salvation. Secondly, the salvation is in Israel in spite of Israel's resistance. Israel is still a sinful people. God has got to refine them. We see this throughout the Old Testament. They're a stiff-necked people. And I'll give you some verses in a moment that indicate that. Well, let's look at one right now before we... Yeah, let's look up one. Whose turn is it? Connie? Exodus 20, read verses 6 through 10. Yeah, that's part of the Ten Commandments, but it indicates the central problem that Israel will have is idolatry. So the first two commandments deal with a soul commitment to the God that has led them out of Egypt. Let's read another verse. Let's read uh, Mark, look up Deuteronomy 9.24. That one is clearer in terms of their resistance. You have been rebellious against the Lord from the day I knew you. What? Rebellious from the day I knew you. And we're not like that at all. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, you could read on, and there's several verses like that. So in spite of Israel's resistance, God is still going to save them, because it's always on, on the basis of grace. It's not on the basis of those that are saved, and that's true of us as well. Now, we're going to look at the, the plagues, and we're going to see that they are miraculous. They are not natural. God is producing things that did not come about by natural means. Just the intensification of the things that happened. Remember the false Egyptian prophets and priests? They were able to produce some of the magic, but what God did in terms of the intensification, eventually they gave up and realized that there was more going on here than what they were acquainted with from the occult. And they were producing signs by the occult, but something greater than the occult was in their presence. So just the intensification of the plague speaks of the supernatural nature of what's going on. Also, the clear prediction. Oftentimes God would say tomorrow, this, or God would tell him, tell Pharaoh that tomorrow or at this certain time this is going to happen. They're predicted. And just as they're predicted, they come about just exactly in the way that they're predicted. Thirdly, there's also a discrimination in the outpouring of the plagues. The plagues hit the Egyptians, and it spared the Israelites in large measure. In fact, let's look at a couple of verses. Randy, chapter 810. This speaks of a prediction, 810, dealing with one of the particular plagues. And he said tomorrow, and he said give Okay, tomorrow. In other words, when it comes about, you're going to know that 
It's different from what it is today, and the only explanation is God himself. Also read 23, 823. A different plague. Randy. And I will put a division between my people and your tomorrow shall be silent. Okay, that not only prediction, but what else? Discrimination. Read 9-4, Loretta. This is God discriminating between the Egyptians and his people. But the Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Israel. Okay, a distinction. That indicates that it can't, it's not something natural. Did you finish the verse? Or? No. Okay. So that nothing will die of all that belongs to the sons of Israel. Okay. So the plague on the animals, there's clear distinction. And that follows. You, you can see that in many of the plagues. You have wording similar to that. There's also an orderliness to all of the, the plagues. They are gradually intensifying, becoming more and more severe, and they reach a climax, which gets to the very heart of the Egyptian empire, the Pharaoh himself. Also, they are miraculous because they have a moral or, you might say, a spiritual purpose. They're designed to reveal things. They're designed to demonstrate the God of Israel superior to all of these false gods of the Egyptians. Designed to demonstrate the omnipotence of Yahweh. The omnipotence of Israel's God. So, these are miraculous plagues. Now, to understand the significance of the plagues, uh, let's kind of transition from what we've been looking at here in terms of these judgments and salvation of Israel, or leading to the salvation. Let me give you a little description of the Egyptian culture so we can understand what's going on in the book of Exodus. First and foremost, they were a very polytheistic people. And what we mean is they believed in many, many gods. In fact, they saw gods behind many creatures, many things in nature, the Nile was viewed as a god. I'll show you some photographs and other things relating to some of these different gods. But they were very polytheistic. Pharaoh himself was considered a god. So they worshipped and they recognized and their whole religion dealt with many, many gods. So we need to understand the polytheistic nature. And perhaps more than any other peoples of the Old Testament, and some scholars have counted 80 different gods or been able to identify from the Egyptian writings and culture, 80 different gods, almost all creatures and many inanimate objects were gods or gods were behind them. Secondly, I've already mentioned Pharaoh himself was considered a god. In many of the artwork that remain, Pharaoh is amongst the gods and has relationships with, with gods. He's pictured as a part of the forces of nature. He's more than a man. And actually he's a mediator between the Egyptians and the gods. And they viewed as Pharaoh as giving life. And obviously he controlled all of the society 
and was the focus of the whole state. So Pharaoh was a god, and I'm I'm saying this because God is going to demonstrate that he can do whatever he wants to with these so-called gods, including Pharaoh. And I've already mentioned the culture. This is the highest culture of any peoples that preceded the Egyptians. Very, very high culture. And just to give you a feel, if you visit, for example, the Luxor Temple in Luxor, which I photographed these, we have very, very impressive structures, very impressive temples. Even these, we have difficulty in understanding how they built these structures. I'm just giving you some of the structures that exist today. So there was a whole temple with a roof structure above all of these columns. And these are huge. I'll give you a perspective in a moment with a person next to some of these. In very intricate, very involved, what do you call it, artwork in all of the columns that communicate certain things. This would have been a pharaoh. This would have been a god. And a god having interaction here, a god offering things to Pharaoh, it looks like, in that relief. This is a Karnak temple, also at Luxor. Very, very impressive. And that gives you a perspective of the size of those columns. And if you can imagine, there would have been a roof structure over, and this is just the kind of the central layer of columns. There's several columns on both sides that would have supported this huge temple. And by the way, this whole this whole area here is aligned, I don't remember what stars, but it's aligned such that I think a solstice, you can see the sun shining through there and aligned with certain stars. It's quite an impressive structure. Just another photograph with the obelisk that I showed before. So this is high culture. These These are not primitive people. And they were the empire of the day. Typical relief, another pharaoh, writings, hieroglyphs, also at Karnak. In fact, the last few photographs were at Karnak. Only the first one was at Luxor. Fourthly, they valued stability and order, Egyptians. Probably the most stable of empires in all of world history. Few rebellions because it went against their worldview. They, they liked stability. The people enjoyed stability. Pharaohs provided stability. The structures that they built were extremely stable. How do you knock over a pyramid? And even these temples, highly stable, such that they, except for the roofs, stand to this very day. So they valued stability and order. And what is God going to do? He's going to introduce extreme instability in what people valued the most. He's going to get their attention. They must have had some tools that archaeology has not found or in some way was destroyed as a result of just the ravages of time. To be able to cut the stones, to be able to survey the land, to make it absolutely flat, they must have had some means to be able to move these stones and fairly rapidly, because the time frame in which they built these structures was within a lifetime of a pharaoh. And there were not that many Egyptian people to be able to, to accomplish these tasks. So there must be something that we don't know, some technology. I was going to say, how would that, how would that technology just disintegrate? I mean, it would have to be 
master structuring these technologies that they use. They were ever to disintegrate to do that type of work. It was made of wood. Wood is not that strong. Yeah, yeah. I just, we just don't know. We don't know. We don't know. And history hasn't left us a clue, or archaeology hasn't found anything yet. Henry Frankfurt, who is an Egyptologist, expert in the knowledge and study of the Egyptian culture, he says the following. The Egyptian belief was that the universe is changeless. This is the stability idea. The universe is changeless, and that all apparent opposites must, therefore, hold each other in equilibrium. Such a belief has definite consequences in the field of moral philosophy. So it affected worldviews, is what he's saying, of the Egyptians. It puts a premium on whatever exists with a semblance of permanence. And they built things that reflected the stability. It excludes, he goes on, it excludes ideals of progress, utopias of any kind, revolutions, there are very few revolutions in Egyptian history. And he goes on, and any other radical changes in existing conditions. In other words, don't change, it's working, don't change it. We are stable, and they were extremely stable. So this Exodus event is going to disrupt that stability in a huge way. Now, there's a lot of passages that we're going to see later on. I'll call some of them to your attention, but there's a lot of them in Scripture that indicate the Exodus event was far more significant than what we think of it. We think of it, oh, it's just a Bible event. It's just something that happened in history, isolated, just in Egypt. And we think of that because the... World texts don't treat it that way. This should be one of the major events in world history texts, but it's oftentimes omitted because it's only generally in the Bible. So they value stability, number five here. The state and Pharaoh were the same. He was the Pharaoh or the king or the ruler of the state, and what he said, that's what went on in the state. He was their savior, and he was their security. He provided sustenance to them. He just not, Like I said, he gave them life, or the things that produced life, and he ensured security. So he was worshipped as a god. Another characteristic of Egyptian culture is they were separatists. And I've already mentioned that part, but we need to include it in our list of Egyptian culture. And what we mean by separatists... They separated themselves from other cultures. They were already somewhat isolated in the desert of Egypt. But when peoples like the Israelites came, and even though they dwelled in the land, they would stay separate from them. They would not intermarry. And that's an important concept, because that's what God is doing. In fact, Holland, look up Genesis 43:32. just that kind of gives us this idea of separatists. Genesis 43, 32. They served him by himself and then by themselves. Now this, let me give you the context. This is Joseph, and his brothers have come. He hasn't revealed himself yet, but it gives us a little insight in that occasion there of this separatist idea. Let's start over. 
They served him by himself, and them by themselves, and the Egyptians who ate with him by themselves, because the Egyptians could not eat the Hebrews, for that is an abomination to Egypt. Okay, so the Egyptians could not eat with the Hebrews. It was an abomination. And yes, Joseph was a Hebrew, as an Egyptian, and intermarried an Egyptian. So yes. Joseph? Well, because Joseph made himself such a a valuable person. That's it. Joseph became so valued by the Egyptians that he was able to rise to the prominence of basically second in command in Egypt. Right. You say earlier, like the last class or something, one of the reasons that Egypt was to become the tool of his judgment was because Egypt was one of the, Egypt was separate so they wouldn't absorb the Hebrews. Mm. I don't remember if I said that exactly, but they're the object of God's judgment primarily because they are unbelievers. In other words, they reject the one true God and because they oppress God's people. I think what Mark did say. Did I? Yeah, because it had to do with the idea that they would preserve, preserve with them because Egypt wouldn't absorb them. Yeah, I said that, but... Just today you say Canaanites... Right. Right. But in relationship to judgment, I don't know if I... Well, his judgment of having to go into Egypt, they would have had to go somewhere for judgment. He chose Egypt because they were separatists. Oh, yeah, yeah. Put them in an environment where they would be preserved. And when I was thinking of judgment, I thought you were talking about judgment on Egypt, but you're talking about discipline of... The judgment of, uh, of, of the, the children of Israel. Yeah. And again, just another photograph of Egyptian high culture there. Bent pyramid, and, and this gives you an indication of the interior block work, and if you look closely, the face would have been continuous throughout. No. They have chambers, but they're not hollow. Yes, right. In this period. Later on, in a later period in the Karnak area, there's a, what's called the Valley of the Kings, where this is in a later period where they buried kings in underground, hidden areas. Because basically the pyramids, historically, basically said the pharaoh is here and grave robbers would break in. If you had a credit card, you could not stick it between these blocks. And these are individual blocks. How do you cut them so precise, fit them? Similar in the pyramids of Giza. So God is going to disrupt this whole situation. And let's take a look at these verses. McKinsey, read Exodus 4, 8. If they will not believe you, God's sin, or listen to the first time, they may believe the liars. Skip to 22 and read 22, 23. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son, and I say to you, Let my son go, that he may, if he refuse to let him, behold, I will kill you, firstborn Okay, so God is going to disrupt this stability, and it's going to go all the way to the top. And chapters 5 through 18, we're going to see the defeat of Egypt in the book of Exodus. Let's take a break, and then we'll look at the next implication in terms of salvation by grace.